Hello, and welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'd like to welcome you today to Back in Control Radio. Today, I'm your host, David Hanscom. I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon who is the author of a book, Back in Control, a surgeon's roadmap out of chronic pain. And we've watched hundreds of patients go pain-free with relatively simple strategies over the last 10 years or so. And I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, um, Dr. Bernie Siegel. I've been a fan of his since the 80s when I was in college, and actually earlier than that, but I'll say the 80s, um, when I read his book, Love, Medicine, Miracles, and I was extraordinarily intrigued by his experience with the Exceptional Cancer Survivors Group. And that's going to be our topic today is dealing with patients' capacity to deal with their own healing powers. And I've been very clear for quite a while, more the last couple of years in my own mind, that the whole book and doc project that we are dealing with is not a formula, really it's a structure and a framework that allows a patient to organize their thinking in a way that they can talk to the doctor and then connect to their own healing capacity. And Bernie's been one of my mentors. Every week I send out my blog post and Bernie gives me a few very concise comments back, which are always relevant. And I've learned a lot. And really it's the story that helps a lot. But I'm extremely curious to find out how Bernie came to his view and what his current experience has been. But Bernie is a, I'm going to let him introduce himself. He spent years as a pediatric general surgeon in New Haven, Connecticut. He now lives in New Haven, Connecticut. I've had the privilege of spending a couple of visits at his house, which is wonderful, animals everywhere and as down to earth as you can imagine. And he's also sort of a Renaissance type guy with art and different things that he does. But the main thing is his insights into life in general and his wisdom in dealing with patients. So I'd introduce Dr. Bernie Siegel, who's the author of Love, Medicine, Miracles and several other excellent books. Um, welcome, Bernie. Um, I'm excited to uh, have you on the show today. Thank you. <laughs> what would you like me to tell the world? Well, you know, I'd like to just go back to sort of the beginning when you wrote this book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles, when you were a general surgeon. Yeah. And I was a surgeon too, and you have a tendency to sort of a fix-it mindset. I don't know about, maybe you've always been this way, but we're not, we're not renowned for talking or listening to our patients. We're used to sort of getting things done. And I'm just curious right from the beginning, your evolution, how you evolved this process around love medicine and well, miracles. Let me say, it involves a lot of things, and uh, I hope people just keep an open mind. Part of it was a past life experience I had. Why did I have it? Because over a telephone, it's not me seeking it out. A friend of mine knew how busy I was and said, why are you living this life? I went into a trance. And I said to her, oh my God, I have a sword in my hand and I'm killing. Maybe that's why I became a surgeon. So I really had a feeling that I became a surgeon in a sense to make up for the wounds of this other life. Interesting. Well, and not, hey, let, well, me this. let me finish a minute. Because when I was a kid, I was an artist. And I didn't know artists earned a living. So I also wanted to use my hands uh, and surgery seemed to offer that. And these were the reasons. I like people. Yeah, bodies were interesting. Uh, I want to use my hands. So there were a lot of positive things, including people. And I wanted to fix things. I enjoyed that. 
when I became a doctor, I realized something. You can't fix everything. Right. That was what really tore me to pieces. Um, because you were mentioning, if you're taking care of children, why would they be born with you know, congenital defects? Why would a kid get cancer? I mean, you watch these kids suffer and you begin to say, what kind of God would do this? So it, it disturbed my life in many ways. And I kept seeking answers. What phase of your training were you at when this transition took place? I, I would say probably within the first, let's say, 10 years. Uh, you know, you get trained and you're not responsible for all these things, but still you're questioning. Uh, but I'd say the first, you know, you, it, the training takes five or six years. And then I'd right. say the next four or five, when cert suddenly the responsibility is yours. So right. if you make an error in the operating room, uh, I still carry that guilt with me. Right. You know, uh, and those are the patients I remember. The right. ones that had problems, not the ones who walk up to me and say, oh, you were so wonderful. I remember you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but when somebody comes up who had a difficult time or complications of surgery, uh, that's when I remember them and all the things I wish I could have fixed and cured. Right. I mean, that's the hardest part about being a surgeon. There's a research paper showing that after a major technical complication, there's about a 40% incidence of significant depression in the surgeon within the year after yeah. the complication takes place. Well, doctors commit suicide more than the general population. And right. it was interesting in an article I read, anesthesiologists were the group with the highest rate of suicide. And right. I thought, you see, think about that. Why do you become a doctor? I liked people. Right. If you're an anesthesiologist. What do you do with them? You put them to sleep. Right. I mean, so maybe they got a problem to begin with. Right. And this is something I learned from working with medical students. It blew my mind. And everybody listening to this, think about it. Draw yourself working as a doctor. So whatever profession you're in, draw yourself working. And the students in this one medical school, the whole class drew that picture. When I got all of them, about 90 pictures, only one had a patient in it. Wow. A young man kneeling in front of a lady, handing her a tissue. See, wow. to me, that's what being a doctor is. I've learned that. And I'll tell you why in, in a minute when we're done. One uh, had only instruments, you know, computers and things, and no people at all. All the rest had the doctor sitting behind the desk with a diploma on the wall. Wow. Interesting. You know? I mean, wow. so you're not taking care of people. And what changed my life, also a wake-up call. I went to a workshop that was done by Carl Simonton, who wrote the book Getting Well Again to help cancer patients with imagery and, you know, to help empower them. Right. I thought, oh, this is a radiation therapist, doctor, let me go, you know, and help empower me to help patients. Right. I was the only doctor in a room of 150 people. That blew my mind. A what doctor. Other, what other providers were there? Pardon? What other types of people were there? Oh, patients were there. I see. Okay. One therapist, me, and 148 patients. Oh, my goodness. But my patients could sit right around me. And that was another interesting transformation. I immediately went back to the office and pushed the desk against the wall. So we were no longer separated. But this line I carry with me my entire life. 
and I wish I could find the young lady who said it to me. She was my patient, had cancer. You're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. <laughs> so I need to know how to live between office visits. That transformed my life because I figured, okay, there are things I can't cure, but if I can help somebody live with it, I've done something. And that's right. when I got the next shock. We send out a hundred letters to people with cancer from our office saying, you want to live a longer, better life, come to a meeting. I'm expecting hundreds of people to show up because the secretary forgot to put, it's only for the people who receive this letter. You can't bring relatives and friends. So I was a total wreck. What am I going to do with 200 people? 12 women showed up. Hmm. I thought, what? These are all patients from our office and they don't want to come and live a longer, better life. But what I realized, it's all the guilt, shame, and blame built into people. You know, if he asks you to read a book, I don't have time to read a book. If he asks you to draw a picture of your treatment, I'm not an artist. And, and what if I don't love enough and get well? Then I'm another failure. I mean, they were so laden with guilt and blame and shame. I finally, in a sense, began to understand my patients. And see, the psychiatrists know this. Uh, because if you, you know, got troubles like a die, you go to a psychiatrist and you don't die, they notice what it is in your personality that helps you survive. And believe me, they've written articles about cancer and AIDS patients, you see. And when I wrote articles for medical journals about my experience, they were sent back saying interesting but not appropriate. Really? When you sent it to a psychiatry journal, it came back again, but this time it said, yeah, it's appropriate, but it isn't interesting. We know all this. <laughs> and, and that's the sad part. You see, you teach survivor behavior. Right. Uh, and, and so I began to meet people I thought were dead. Um, you know, they'd be at a talk or workshop, and I'd walk over and say, what are you doing here? Do you never come back to the office? Well, you, why go back to the office if everybody's telling you, you know, some drastic negative thing? Right. Uh, and not coming from me, you know, but from other doctors. And, right. um, and so I would learn from them their story. Why didn't you die when you were supposed to? And they always had a story about how they improved their life. Okay. Any dramatic, fantastic, it was just what felt good you know, for me to do with the last few months of my life. And then they noticed they didn't die. I have one letter that ends with, I didn't die, now I'm so busy, I'm killing myself. Help, where do I go from <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. I think you already answered this, but I'll ask two questions. What is the essence of healing on these, I mean, these are terminal stage four cancer patients who are terminal, and they survive for years, cancer-free. Right. The stories are quite dramatic. What do you think are some of the core character characteristics of those people? You mentioned one sort of a survivor mentality. What does that look like? What does a survivor mentality look right. like to well, you? Let me mention two things. One is a list. The other is how doctors see things in the headlines. So-and-so loses his battle. Failure, you know, and so you die. But it's not a failure to die. It's going to happen to all of us. And don't fight a battle. One of my patients was a conscientious objector. He was a Quaker. He went to an oncologist. You see, the doctor doesn't get to know, as Jung said, the doctor treats the diagnosis, but they need to know the patient's story. Right. So here's this conscientious objector, and what wonderful thing does the doctor say? 
Dave, I'm going to kill your cancer. Dave got up, walked out of the office and said, I don't kill anything. Wow. Now he lived for 10 or 12 years. His image was, I carry them away, you know? And I think that's the part. We have to stop this warlike thing and get into healing. And again, the psychiatrist is more open to that. Okay. Uh, the list that came up, immune competent personality from, I think it was George Solomon in California. Um, some of the things were, well, look, Monday morning, we had more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. So the first thing on his list was have a sense of meaning in your daily activity and work. Okay. Um, ask friends and family for help if you need it. Say no to the things you don't want to do. So if somebody asks you to do something and you don't want to, say no. You don't have to feel guilty. And nurses, 95% of nurses, when I present this question to them, I say, you're asked to do something for family or friends you don't want to do. What do you tell them? Oh, I would do it. Why? You know, it's the guilt in them. Um, you know, having some play and joy in your life, making decisions about treatment. Um, I don't know, there are four or five more things in it, but they're all related to enjoying life and taking responsibility and charge. Not about, again, the guilt, if I do it wrong, what does it right? I mean, my way of saying it to people is, let your heart make up your mind. Interesting. Like you put on her refrigerator, when you live in your heart, magic happens. And she didn't die of her disease. Well, one thing I'd like to go back to my pain project for a second. There's a book called Sapiens, which goes into the evolution of the human experience starting 13.5 billion years ago. And he has a couple of paragraphs that he says what I've been saying for a while, but he says it very eloquently, is that your sense of well-being, whether it's yesterday or 500,000 years ago, depends on your body's chemistry. So right. if you're full of adrenaline, cortisol, histamines, and stress chemicals, you're agitated, you're hypervigilant, you're in survival mode, it just doesn't feel very good. When you're at play, which is oxycontin, um, oxytocin, the love drug, the GABA drugs, which are like Valium, right. dopamine, the reward chemical, and serotonins, which are the antidepressants, well, it's a, an incredible chemical bath, and you feel right. relaxed, you feel good. So not only does that body chemistry have you feel agitated versus feeling good, really the success of my project is teaching people how to actually connect with the healing powers, which means you either probably unconsciously learn to regulate your body's chemistry, we do know when you're in chronic pain that the average lifespan is about seven years shorter than the average. And one of the questions to ask you is I'm not exposed to cancer like many oh. physicians are, but it seems to me that a lot of people get cancer under periods of extreme stress. Yeah. Let me say two things to you. One is that I learned to ask people, what are you experiencing? Okay. If they set their diagnosis. They say, that's not my question. What's it like to have it? Okay. Now, if you talk about pain, one woman said pressure. Okay. To make a long story short, the pressure in her life was a marriage. She was about to be admitted to the hospital. Um, she was about to be admitted to the hospital with the pain. It was severe migraines for weeks. Okay. But when I said to her, what else in your life is? He connected. I left her after doing a meditation to help her too. And the nurse came over to me and said, it's a marriage. The pain's gone. She's going home. <laughs> okay. 
A woman with cancer, what's the, oh, failure. How does that fit your life? Well, my body mm -hmm. failed. That's not my question. How does it fit your life? Oh, my parents committed suicide when I was a child. I must have been a failure as a child. See, again, the psychiatrists understand this. Jung said, the, the key thing for the doctor is a diagnosis. But the key thing for the patient is the story. The experience. For that's where, you know, help and treatment, et cetera, begins. So you look at ads in the paper. Um, I'm depressed. Here's a pill. That's right. what the drug company says. Here's a pill. I feel better now. When I write to these companies and say, don't you think the doctor ought to say what's going on in your life? Right. You know, if your family was killed in a fire and you're depressed, all you get is a pill, nobody to talk to. So I learned to treat the experience, to treat right. the story. Oh, when I was blamed for blaming my patients. Oh, you, you wouldn't believe the things you hear from other doctors. I recited a poem. It was just what you talked about. Cancer. A doctor comes home from the office, says to his wife, cancer's a funny thing. Childless women get it, and men when they retire. It's as if there had to be an outlet for their foiled creative fire. So what does a doctor yell from the audience? Just because it rhymes doesn't make it true. Oh, boy. But, you know, he's not paying attention to life. I mm -hmm. learned. Ask your people, what's going on? So when changes occur, it could make them vulnerable. Just what you're saying. If you give actors, this is all done. I don't make up stories. A script, tragedy, comedy. Right. Their function increases while they're acting a comedy and stress hormone levels go down. Acting right. a tragedy, the opposite happens. I so see. I tell people, rehearse and practice to become the person you want to be. And in one study, people who laughed every three hours for no reason had a better survival with cancer than those who didn't. And, and to go back to my early work, everybody said I was nuts, that I had no statistics. No. A Yale student did a study, showed the people in our groups had a better survival. His professor at Yale said it can't be true and didn't let him publish it. Really? Oh yeah. my goodness. Now, when did things begin to change? Again, when a psychiatrist in California said Siegel's crazy. What difference does it make if you go to a group? I'm going to start a group. And then he had a control group that wasn't in the group. And right. he was honest enough to publish and talk about it. The people in his support group had far better survival than the women who didn't. Um, and see, then they couldn't say, oh, well, Siegel played with the numbers. Because here's a guy who's trying to prove I'm right. wrong, and it right. came out the opposite. Right. Well, you know, there's a paper, you know, my wife and I and daughter do this workshop at Omega, which you were involved with a couple right. of years ago, which was phenomenal. And what we found out, the most powerful force in healing is other people, interacting yeah. in the positive with other people. And what we found out in the workshop, in the three-day workshops, why probably 80% of the people went to pain-free within the workshop. And what happened is that my daughter is very excellent at relaxation type tools. Then my wife is a rhythm expert and does a cup song and some other rhythm exercises. And people just start to laugh. And yeah. I honestly didn't expect that. So I developed a structure. We also put in hope. And then we started to play. Within 12 hours after people started to laugh, their pain disappeared. It was unbelievable. And it was very unexpected. It happens every year. And if I decided that I don't do that much, I'm there, I create the structure, I put a little bit of didactic in there. 
But really, at the end of the day, people heal each other, I think. Yeah. I learned that, and I mean this literally, when you laugh, you cannot be afraid. You cannot be in pain. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So as a doctor, uh, I was, and I still am, I was like a child in the operating room. Okay. I mean, I did a lot of children's surgery. And sometimes the kids look at their parents and say, you're going to let this crazy man operate on me? Because nice. I would get them laughing. On my website, there's an article deceiving people into health. Right. I lied to people and I helped them to laugh. Now, when you say lie, you take an alcohol sponge, tell them it's going to numb their skin. It's a new sponge. Right. And three quarters of them say, oh, why don't the other doctors do that? Thanks. That was great. Wow. They, and if they felt something, I'd say, well, it must have been a poorly made sponge, you know. <laughs> uh, but the, what, the reason I learned that is because the kids interpreted what I said as the truth. Right. Say, if I said to you in the emergency room, you'll go to sleep and you go in the operating room, you're going to think of anesthesia. But you say to a six-year-old, you'll go to sleep and you go in the operating room. They don't think of anesthesia. So they fall asleep when they're wheeled in the room. I mean this literally. It got to be a joke when I would bring a kid into the operating room. Everybody bust out laughing because these kids would fall asleep. I mean, the one I always laugh about, he had appendicitis and he turned over in the operating room and went to sleep. So I picked him up and turned him back. And he started screaming at me. You know, what are you doing? I said, I'm turning you over so I get your appendix out. I sleep on my stomach and you said I'd sleep in the operating room. I mean, I had a bargain with him. Oh my goodness. To turn over. <laughs> you know, explain, I can't get to your appendix from the back. But, right. but that's when I learned that my words were powerful and I began right. to instruct parents that it's okay to give your kid a vitamin pill and tell them you won't have pain and your nausea will disappear or whatever. And right. the kids take a vitamin and feel fine. And it happens in adults, too, when family members, and I hear all these stories from them, give their, their you know, relative the wrong medication. And right. they, are re, you know, recover from their problem. And then when they bring it in again, and the, this woman happened to now have her glasses on and could see, she said, that's not, you know, my medication. Well, it worked last time. Um, because her daughter had given her the wrong thing and she thought it was the correct thing. So I try to get people to create also the positive images. And let me tell you just on simple terms, because one lady was in a total panic and I spent an hour trying to calm her down before I brought her in the operating room and it was hopeless. So I said to her, we have to go in. I mean, I, I, you know, we can't wait anymore. I wheeled her into the operating room, and in her panic, she said, thank God, all these wonderful people are going to take care of me. I thought, I agree with her. It's going to do nothing. So I said to her, I've worked with them for years. They're not wonderful people. <laughs> she burst out laughing. We became a family. See? Nice. And that's what I, I realized, how much that does for everybody. Right. You know, everybody in the room cares about you. Um, I, I have to tell you one more that... <laughs> My mother-in-law was around 80, had a hernia from helping her paralyzed husband. He had a spinal cord injury. Wow. And she's such a proper lady. So I get her in the operating room, doing this under local ingrown hernia. And I knew I've got to embarrass her. Then she'll have no pain and go right home. So we finished the surgery and I'm thinking, what am I going to say? And then I, it came to me. 
I said loud enough for the whole operating room to hear, remember, no sex for six weeks after you get home. She <laughs> got up, got dressed, and went home and never took a pain pill. Oh, that's she funny. You, again, you know, what the mind can do. Right. And my mother-in-law were good friends. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, here's the thing that's interesting about modern neuroscience. I mean, this is not a psychological trick. I mean, we do know that thoughts and concepts go to part of the brain that other physical threats do, and it translates into changes in the body's chemistry. Yes. And every second of our life, our body chemistry is adapting to the environment, either threat or pleasure or neutral. Mostly it's neutral, of course. But we have this incredible balance that changes by the millisecond. So your nervous system is simply processing this, processing this sensory input and converting it into body chemistry, and then you, you take action you know, to stay alive. Right. So to me, it's fascinating, and I'm going to talk about this in the next segment with you, is that I, I think this is high school science, that if you're threatened, your body chemistry has stress chemicals, and you feel anxious and defensive and alert. And if you relax, your body's full of these great chemicals, you feel right. great. But we learn this in high school science. And yeah. you and I both know the amount we learn in the human body in medical school is studying. I mean, we know a lot about the human body. This is going clear back to high school physiology. Yeah. So it's fascinating. They, they, not just high school. The, those who, the epigenetics, you know, right. the scientists who are into genes right. are more in agreement with me. And that's people I had problems with when they began to realize that the genes don't make the decision. I always say it's like, what turns your lights on? Right. You gotta flip a switch. And the same thing with genes and everything else. So it's not blaming people, but right. try to empower them. As I say, it's the Monday morning syndrome. There are more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. And right. if every day in your life is Monday morning, yeah, your body will get you out of here as soon as it can. Right. I'd like to finish this section off with one concept I'd like you to comment on, is that you've used the word guilt multiple times. And guilt is a word most a lot of people are familiar with, including myself historically. And I've heard the word that guilt is anger turned inward and those anger turns against yourself. And again, going back to the idea about how chronic stress creates disease, changes the body's chemistry, the data is pretty clear. And so I do know you, in your book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles, you talk about a study out of Harvard. There was a 30 year follow of people that were happy versus unhappy in college. So I'm just curious about this concept of guilt, happy versus unhappy in lifespan. Um, do you remember that paper that you talked about, the Harvard study where they gave a questionnaire to a bunch of college seniors and they followed them over Yeah, time? those who said my parents didn't love me, by middle age, 98% had suffered a major illness. Those who said I was loved, 24% had. And I really keep repeating this endlessly. The greatest problem in the world would be solved if every child grew up loved. Right. Health, wars, uh, you know, even growing, even just growing up with a pet. I mean, it, it's relationships and a reverence for life. But if right. you grow up with love, you feel good about yourself. You take care of yourself. Right. I, I can't, I mean, the stories I hear from people uh, who were told by their parents, commit suicide. Right. They don't love you. Right. Uh, and I tell them to become love warriors. Okay. That's something I learned. When you say to people, I love you, when they're driving you nuts, they don't know what to do. I mean, <laughs> I have suggested that with our president, um, that if everybody said to him, we love you, 
he would be totally confused. <laughs> and I mean it. I don't mean that in insulting. No, I, no, I, I know you mean. Know exactly. it, you yeah. know, they're not saying I'm right, you're wrong. It's we love you. And I've seen this in families where when people have said I love you to their alcoholic abusive parents for months, and then this one young lady came in smiling to me. I said, what's the smile about? I was late today, so I ran out of the house with my parents in the street screaming, you forgot something. I said, I have all my books and all my things. What is it? You didn't say I love you today. <laughs> we were all hugging and crying. So wow. a love warrior. And that wow. includes loving yourself. Create a shrine, put your picture up, and love that kid every time you walk past the picture. See, I, I mean, all these people I know, uh, as I said to one woman, give me a picture of yourself as a child. She said, I don't have any. And her parents told her and all her siblings to commit suicide, and they did. But she said this, when I let love into my prison, it changed every negative item in it, meaning the experiences in my life, and turned them into something meaningful. Wow, that's quite a story. She became my therapist, incredibly wow. spiritual, outlived what doctors predicted by 20 or 30 years. Fantastic. Uh, it was incredible. And boy, talking to her was a pleasure. Well, you know, let, let me say this. At first, what I learned was I didn't talk to her because I didn't know what to tell her. I mean, she told me such a horrible story. I had to sit there and listen. But I realized ultimately that was what she needed, somebody to listen and let her get all this horrible stuff out. Helen Keller put it beautifully. Um, I often say to people, you want to be blind or deaf, and except for musicians, everybody says deaf. But Helen Keller said, deafness is darker by far than blindness. You see, because you're not connected to anybody. Right. Deaf. Um, you can't just sit down at a table and talk because right. you can't hear what they're saying. Right, I'd like to summarize this um, radio blog podcast. Um, so if, I hear Cookie. I think we've come to similar conclusions with different experiences, and that really, I think that the, my pain project and most, if not all, what we both do is basically helping patients connect to their own healing powers. And you know, I don't. I think we're coaches, guides, and cheerleaders, and that's the essence of the process: is connecting to who you are. That includes positives and negatives. You you just connect with what is you start moving forward, is that connected, engaged thinking and experience that I think connects you to your healing powers. Let me add, because what you made me think about, suicidal young woman is in my office. She said, you're my CD. I said, what the hell are you talking about with CD? She said, you're my chosen dad. And I would recommend that to you. Tell your patients that you're, you will be their father, provide them with love and care. And what an impact. Of course, she didn't commit suicide. And I have told this to people when I've, I've had bizarre phone calls for people who want help committing suicide. And I say, I love you. You're a child of God. And I become their parent and they don't commit suicide. Right. No, it's, it's no, very, I mean, your, your experiences are just really remarkable. And I really appreciate you sharing those. Well, Bernie, thanks for being on this program. And we're looking forward to talking to you more. We really appreciate your time. Your experience is remarkable. One more story. Okay. I love it. <laughs> but this is the same. There are two violent people. One was a woman who could have had a gun in a pocketbook. None of us knew. She was just screaming at everybody. 
And I thought she picked me out because I had a shaved head, you know, it was different. And then a boy driving behind me, cursing and screaming because of traffic. Okay. But I mean, his cursing and screaming are ridiculous. I asked the cop to talk to him and the cop refused. So I went over and I said this basically to both of them. I want you to know I love you. I'm sorry for whatever's going on in your life. I'm sorry your parents didn't love you, but I do. They both turned, got in a car, and drove away. Wow. The people in the street came over to me and said, can't believe it. Thank you for what you showed us. One guy was about to knock the woman down. Wow. Uh, and then I said, I love you. And she walks away. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, the healing power of love is remarkable. It, right. it's, it's really the essence of healing. Well, Bernie, thanks again. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk again soon. All right. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.